And you should have a set of notes that begins on page 24. We'll look at that in a moment. Here's what's coming up every Wednesday, our midweek program, 7 o'clock, and classes for all ages. So we encourage you to avail yourself of that. Saturday, this Saturday, is the newcomer's brunch that we've been announcing for many weeks at our house. We have those a handful of times throughout the year. And if you've not registered for that, then you need to do that today so we know how many people are coming. That's 10 a.m. at our house. You can register at the information center in the lobby, and they will give you an invitation that has a map to our house, our phone number, and uh, the uh, time and date. And then a week from Saturday is our bowling event at Woodhaven Lanes. You need to get, uh, you need to register for that, pay for that, $7 per person, two games of bowling and uh, shoes, and $28 maximum per family. You can do that online, or you can do that at our resource center out the back door and across the hallway. Notes for the prior three sessions of this. If you missed any of those, those notes from past sessions are in the Resource Center as well. So if you want to pick up some or all of those, then you can do that. Just go into the Resource Center out the back door and across the hallway. Now, I'm told that the cover on today's lesson that you have that says page 24 says session 3. And this is session 4. So... You can mark out three and put right in four. Sorry about that. I don't make the covers. Um, Just the guts. So we'll get our act together on that. This is actually session four, but you know you have the right set of notes if you're starting on page 24. And then on page 24, I guess this is me. Uh, So I'll have to go back and look at my notes, but it says section three. But it's actually section, it's section two, session four. So we've got four sessions of eight lessons. And this is another session within the second session. So it's section two. But who cares if you've got page 24 in front of you, you'll be good, okay? Yeah, don't, don't get ticked about it. Don't get mad. So here's what we've looked at thus far. We all do anger with all that we are. All of us have this issue of anger, and anger affects every piece of us. Anger affects all of us, even though we express anger differently. In fact, some of you here, and maybe several, maybe many, are actually angry at an angry person. You're in a marriage where you're angry because you're living with an angry person. So you've still got anger. But you're, uh, you're, you're uh, expressing it differently. That person that you've been living with as this angry person has expressed it in very obvious and overt ways. And they've made life tough, difficult for you and perhaps others. So now you're angry, you're expressing your anger in a different way, but you're still angry. And the point is that then anger affects all of us, even though we express it differently. And sometimes 
we think that certain expressions of anger are better than others. When, in fact, sometimes it's simply because we are made differently. Some people are more demonstrative and, and extroverted and outgoing and they and boisterous and they ex- express their anger in obvious ways. That does not mean that the person who is more quiet and has a slow burn is better. It comes from the same root and it actually is at heart, the same, literally at heart, the same thing. So it affects all of us, even if we express it differently, and we do. And it expresses, we've seen, all of who we are, our bodies, our emotions, our thoughts, and our desires and motives. So that the potential for anger is within each of us all the time, especially since the bottom and most root issue for us is our desires and motives. We are carrying those around in our hearts all the time. So that then we can get angry at someone or something because that desire, that motivation is with us and something triggers it. And now I'm angry about something. And if you were asked, why are you angry about this? You can't explain it. You kick something. You punched the wall. What did the wall do? What did the cat do? Other than being a cat, which is bad enough. But so, but you, you know, you kick something, you get mad about something. I'm in Toronto this past week and I've got some work to do while I'm there, but I've got time in my hotel room to do some of that work. And so I've got my week planned out pretty well. Except when I get there, I realize I did not bring the power cord to my laptop. So I get as much stuff as I can get done on my laptop and the 49% battery that it has left. But 49% wasn't enough. And I lose it completely. It's gone. I still got stuff to do. Well, anger is starting to well up. Who am I angry at? I have no earthly idea. Who should I be angry at? Me. I'm the one who forgot the stupid cord. And by the way, the cord is stupid. (laughs) So then, you know, but God is merciful. I look up an Apple store because I've got a Mac. And there's an Apple store 15 minutes from where I am. So the next morning I go to this mall that is gigantic. I'm told it's the biggest mall in all of Canada. And I'm walking around trying to find the Apple store. Well, now I'm mad at the Apple store and the Apple people, okay, to get my cord. Do you know how much an Apple power cord costs? It's about 100 bucks. Yeah. 111 Canadian. About 80 U.S. And uh, so I'm hoping they'll just let me charge. Maybe they'll let me borrow one. I'm only here for a couple of days. No, nothing doing. I've got to go and get Canadian money out of an ATM, give them... But really, I have much to be thankful for. But you you have this anger. They let me buy it, but said you've got 14 days to bring it back. And a Canadian friend of mine, pastor friend, took it back for me on Saturday and got the money, and he's going to return American money to me, which is a great thing. So it it all worked out, and I thank the Lord for that. But my point is, that was nothing to be angry about. If anybody you could be angry with, it's it's me. 
But you can feel that starting to well up. And further now, I'm more irritated at everything else that happens in the mall because all of that's going on. I'm angry. But I've not evaluated the situation properly. That happens to me. That happens, that happens to you as well. So we all get angry and we have these desires that then can be transferred. And you heard me a couple of weeks ago refer to transfer anger then. I'm transferring this anger that's seething within me, perhaps at a low level, perhaps at a high level, but I'm transferring it to someone or something else. Further, we've seen that as with everything, the capacity for anger was made by God for good, but we distort it for ill. We distort it for bad, for evil. The capacity to be able to size something up and see that it's wrong and react to it is something that God gave us for good. But like all things, sin distorts those good things that God has given. Because it was originally designed by God to be good, that's why you can be good and angry. But it's a battle for us to be good and angry because sin distorts everything. It distorts sex. God made that to be good. Adam and Eve were able to be in each other's presence in the garden completely unclothed. And before sin, not an impure thought comes into either of their minds. But sin distorts immediately. When they sin, now sinful, impure thoughts. Now doing things with and to other people that ought not be done come into the sinful mind using something that God intended for good in evil, distorted ways. It's true then for the capacity to anger. It's true for sex. It's true for the use of money. It's true for work. God gave work as a good thing to use, be, display the image of God in our work and our creativity and ability. We distort work. So we become workaholics. And it becomes about the work rather than about the God who gave the, the work. Same thing with our emotions. Everything about us. God gave us these capacities to do But the way we do them post-fall, after the entrance of sin, is distorted. So the good way to have anger is that you judge something wrong, rightly, and then you act. You judge something to be wrong, rightly, and then you act. That's good anger. Something's wrong. And you're not pleased about that. You're motivated. You're moved to act on behalf of the Lord, on behalf of a victim, on behalf of something beyond yourself. That's good anger. Bad anger is you judge something to be wrong, wrongly. And you don't act on behalf of God. You don't act on behalf of others. You act on behalf of you. But you see how easily that can, the knife's edge is on that. I've got this capacity to see what's wrong and evaluate it. God gave me that ability, gave you that ability. 
but I can use that to size something up wrongly and then react to it wrongly. So the question that each of us needs to ask ourselves is, am I angry at the right things in the right way? The question is not, am I angry? There is such a thing as good anger. The question is, what kind of anger do I have? Am I angry at the right things and in the right way? So anger says, both good and bad anger, always says, I'm against that. There's something wrong with that. On page 10, you don't need to turn there. You may not have that session in front of you. But on page 10 in session 2, a couple of weeks ago, we defined anger as active displeasure towards something that is important enough to care about. Active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. And that's true of both good and bad anger. It's always an active displeasure at something that's important enough to you to care about. The question is, should what you deem to be important be that important? You know, should my cord, my power cord, be that important that I get angry about it? Why Right. So but it's still the same thing. It's all the time active displeasure towards something that's important enough to you to care about. Now, last week we saw that all of us express anger differently because of our nature and our nurture. That is how we're wired naturally is different and how we were nurtured, how we saw situations handled, how we saw anger displayed is different depending on our the models, families, and those around us and how they express that. So from last week, that we express anger is universal. We all do that. We were made to do that. How we express anger is individual. That we do it involves all of us. How we do it is different for each of us. Because we are different by nature and we are different by nurture. Which brings us to page 24 then. And look at the second paragraph. We'll start there. It is possible to say that's wrong and yet express our displeasure in ways that prove truly constructive, actually loving, even beautiful. Jesus saw wrong, called it wrong, and called out wrongdoers. Here is how he describes his purpose. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We justly deserve anger and condemnation. But mercy's purposes control how God expresses his displeasure. This session and the next are about good anger. So let's give this good anger then a name, the constructive displeasure of mercy. Good anger is the constructive displeasure of mercy. That's the, what would the opposite of that be then? The destructive displeasure, not of mercy, but of self-centeredness. So good anger is the constructive displeasure of mercy. Bad anger, sinful anger, is the destructive displeasure of self-centeredness. So let's think about this good anger, the constructive displeasure of mercy. Think about 
those three words, constructive, displeasure, and mercy. Each of those words matters. Good anger operates as one aspect of mercy. It brings good into bad. It stands up for the helpless and the victimized. It calls out wrongdoers, but it holds out promises of forgiveness, inviting wrongdoers to new life. Your anger and mine can be remade into God's image. Of course, when we react to one bad with another, we always compound problems. The typical bad angers are all versions of returning evil for evil. Now, they're all versions of returning evil for evil. But bad anger often actually isn't even reacting to a real evil. It's reacting to a perceived evil. So it's, it is returning evil for evil, but that evil we're reacting to may be real or perceived. It may be genuine or imagined. And the more self-centered we are, the more imagined evils there are. Anything now can become evil that gets in my way. I can evaluate anything as a bad, an evil, a, a not, not a good thing because it's now inconvenienced me. It's made life harder for me. I'm ticked about that. That's why, that's why road rage. You know, what's, what's evil about you being one of another 10,000 cars on the freeway? Here's what's evil about it. Don't these other 9,999 idiots know (laughs) that this freeway is Ken's freeway? This was made for me and life is made for me. And you're in my way. You're making that inconvenient. So there's an evil going on here. But notice, it's not a real evil. It's a perceived evil. Why? And why do I perceive it that way? Because it's about me. It's centered on me. It's self-centered. And the more self-centered I am, the more evils I see. And then I'm returning evil for evil, even when most of the time it's not even actual evil. But where intelligent mercy flows, then mercy's displeasure brings a powerful good. Strong mercy is the DNA of the entire Bible. Clear-minded mercy is the DNA of redemption. Jesus gathers up our angers not to neuter our sensitivity to evil, but to redeem how we respond. And so that's that first word, mercy, then. Instead of being loaded to get what I want, to change what's happening that I don't want because I'm not self-centered, mercy says, I want to use this for the good of God and the good of others. So that's that that's uh, that's one word. We'll see a little more about mercy in a bit. But by definition, next paragraph, mercy is a response to feeling displeasure. That's the other part of the definition, the constructive displeasure of mercy. Mercy is a response to feeling displeasure. When someone is going wrong, when someone is suffering wrong, when things are going wrong, both pleasure and indifference are wrong. If only we did not suffer and did not sin, then we would have no need of God's mercies, his paradoxical loving expressions of his displeasure with how things are. Have you ever thought of that? That's what God's mercy is. 
It's his displeasure with how things are. That's why he mercifully intervenes. That's why he mercifully helps the status quo. If this world did not throb with sufferings and sins, we ourselves would not need to learn how to also feel mercy's energetic displeasure with the status quo. Strong, clear-minded mercy is the way we are meant to transmute feeling disturbed and uncomfortable and bothered by what is. So the issue is not, friends, that you're mad about something. That's not the issue we're covering in this series. You were made to be mad about stuff. God is displeased at stuff. Jesus got and gets angry, as does God. So this this series and what the Bible teaches us about this matter is not the issue of, hey, are you angry? The issue is, what are you angry about? Are you supposed to be angry about that? And how are you channeling that anger? And in a culture of nice, a culture of niceness, we need to hear what I just said. It's not a question of whether you're angry. Because in a culture of niceness, anytime anyone is angry, we immediately think, oh, you can't do that. There are times when Jesus would not have been considered politically correct nice. Am I right about that? But Jesus was always right. He was always right in his assessment. There is a time for anger. But it's got to be at the right things, and it's got to be expressed in the right ways. So, last paragraph. By definition, mercy is then this third thing. Constructive. Mercy intervenes to address and solve whatever problem is in view. Jesus embodies this constructive displeasure of mercy. It's a rich, complex way of responding to life. So in John 11, when he hears about the death of his friend Lazarus, in Greek, in John 11, the words that are used for Jesus' emotional reaction to that include uh, outrage. He's outraged that his friend has died. But he's not outraged at God. He's outraged At the evidence of what sin does. Remember the wages of sin is death. Remember that in the day you eat of it you will die. The reason anybody dies is because of sin. Sin is not part of God's natural order. Did you know that? It's an intruder. Because of sin. And Jesus sees that clearly. And he's angry at sin and sin's consequences. And he does something about it that only he can do. He raises him. And he's going to do that with us as well. Top of page 25, he meets a man with a withered hand. He's resolved to heal the man. But the Pharisees are also there and they're out to get Jesus. In mercy to the man, he looks at the Pharisees with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and then he takes action. He calls Matthew to follow him. He's calling a bad man in Matthew. He eats with Matthew and a crowd of other bad people. The Pharisees raise questions. Why would Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? He responds that doctors work with sick people, not healthy people. I'm calling sinners, not those who think they're good enough and better than other people. In mercy, Jesus does life-giving good for sinners. He willingly dies for weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. So notice, that's constructive. 
That's doing something good, building up. That's responding, yes, with displeasure. But then using that for the good of those who are affected by it. Bad anger is destructive. Good anger builds up, does something constructive. Bad anger is destructive, all right? So how's that all working out for you in your relationships? How are your relationships? If, if you're expressing anger, the bad kind, then you've got destruction in your wake. And some of you have obvious, devastating destruction in your wake. Your bad anger has been a tornado that is torn into the lives of others. And I'm saying this to you, dear friend. I'm saying this to you to say, wake up, look at that. Look at what your bad anger has wrought. Look at what it has done to those around you. Take to heart then what Jesus is saying. Take to heart every session we're going through. We got four more. At what Jesus says about how to rechannel that anger and about what to do about the devastation that you've already caused, we will see that. So I'm hoping, if, particularly if you're in that situation, you're alive to that, you're awake to that, and you want that. So near the top of page 25, mercy. Because Jesus hates suffering and he loves sufferers, sufferers find help and joy. Mercy. Because Jesus hates sin and loves sinners, sinners find forgiveness and joy. This response to something that is wrong in our world is complex. It involves a constructive mix of justified anger combined with mercy and active efforts to make true peace where there's trouble. The constructive displeasure of mercy. That's what good anger is, remember. It traverses exactly the same ground as simple anger. But it's on a different spectrum altogether. It does not act like the typical hostilities. Like simple anger, it says that matters. It's wrong and offensive. I want to do something about it. But unlike just getting mad, it says that's wrong and I will be constructively merciful in pursuing whatever is just, whatever makes things right, whatever does good. And again, this this assumes that the matters at hand are things you should be mad and angry about. That you've evaluated the situation accurately, and it is something that you should be angry about. But for most of us, the things we get angry about are not things we should be to begin with. Why? Because they're self-centered. They're based upon it being an inconvenience for me. Mercy is an entirely different way of reacting to offenses, to things we think are wrong. Think about this. Mercy is not a non-reactive indifference because it does care. And it's the furthest thing from disapproval because what's happening is actually wrong. Mercy includes a component of forceful anger, but anger's typical hostility, its vindictiveness, and its destructiveness do not dominate. True mercy proceeds hand-in-hand with true justice. It brings mercy to victims by bringing justice. While working hand-in-hand with it, it offers mercy to violators. Mercy contains a combination of attitudes and actions that proceed in a constructive instead of destructive way. 
Mercy, including its component of constructive anger, is an amazing act of love. It's how we love in the face of something wrong. I can know something is utterly wrong, and yet I can act constructively. Now, I assume we would all like to grow in expressing this constructive displeasure of mercy. At home and at work and at church, we'd like to respond to wrongs with constructive mercy instead of making a bigger mess. The good news is we can all do that. And to do that is a long, slow process, but it starts with understanding what we're aiming for. So here are these four key aspects to the constructive displeasure of mercy. And you see them listed at the bottom there. Patience, forgiveness, charity, and constructive conflict. We often lack a rich sense of exactly what such varied aspects of mercy actually do and mean. We can understand displeasure, indifference, and pleasure, but though constructive displeasure is the key to becoming both sane and humane, most of us lack a category for that. Patience, forgiveness, charity, and constructive conflict sound religious for good reason. The actions and attitudes that express the constructive mercy are exactly how the Bible portrays the man Jesus in action. Now, if you'll skip down a couple of paragraphs where it says, we must grasp. We must grasp the workings of merciful displeasure in order to think rightly about anger. How does the inworking of such mercies into your experience change the way you feel displeasure? How does their outworking and how you live change the way you face life's provocations and disappointments and frustrations and betrayals? Patience, forgiveness, charity, and constructive conflict put a qualitatively different spin on troubles and problems. All of them go together. If anyone is missing, you've lost something crucial. This session is going to look at the first two, patience and forgiveness. The next will take a close look at charity and constructive conflict. As we look closely at these, we'll notice that they express the most powerful interpersonal dynamic imaginable. It is Christ himself, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. It's the engine of peacemaking. It's the triumph of love over hate, indifference, and living for personal pleasure. So the first is patience. If we're going to have good anger, if we're going to have this merciful displeasure that builds up constructively, then the first thing the Bible teaches us is it's going to require patience. We're in it for the long haul. Now, that's a curious response to something that's wrong. And why is it curious? Because when you are truly patient, you agree with the moral evaluation that anger makes. That's wrong. So you see something that's wrong. It's just that you don't jump on it immediately. All the time. You're patient. You're going to take the path that is most constructive for the sake of those involved. So it agrees with all angers because at the heart of all angers is an evaluation. That's wrong. Patience says that it's wrong. But what you're doing and it's saying what you're doing does not please me. It offends me. It hurts people. True patience is not about them being passive, indifferent, tolerating evil. You don't just put up with bad things. It's not an easygoing tolerance and neutrality. It does not accept anything and affirm everything. Patience hates what's happening. But then it rolls up its sleeves to redress what is wrong. It sees wrong, but it's slow to anger. And this is a prime characteristic of the Lord God. He is gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger. 
It's the first characteristic of love. Love is, remember, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. God is love and slow to anger. He intends to make us like himself. 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. And then that passage goes on to say, you remember what 2 Peter 3, 9 says? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the context of his patience. He sees what's wrong. He could justly and rightly destroy all of us. But in his love, he has meted out his anger and his wrath, not on us, but on God the Son. He took that wrath for us. And with those who have yet to come to God the Son, he is patient. Not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God is slow to anger and he is patient. And that affects then the way he acts. Bottom of page 26, patience is an intelligent feeling act. When you're patient, you often see the wrong more clearly. You feel the knife edge more keenly. Hmm. The longer I am patient, the more I feel it. And the more I can see the wrong, then more clearly. You actually notice more and deeper wrongs than you when you react than when you react resentfully. Our resentments are often petty, but patience takes personally. (laughs) Get this: patience takes personally. Wrongs that don't necessarily slap our private agendas in the face. You got to read that over. It takes personally wrongs that aren't necessarily about me. Think about self-centered anger. Self-centered anger, if it's really self-centered, I get, I get going because something affects me. But this kind of patient Patience sees more clearly what's going on over time and how it's affecting the individual and how that individual is affecting other people. And it's concerned about that, things that don't necessarily slap my own private agenda in the face. So if I'm going to have good anger, displeasure that is constructive then over the long haul, I'm taking this in and I'm seeing it for what it is. And as I do that, I'm going to see it's about more than what it does to me. It's what it does to them. It's what it's doing to other people. It notices others' sufferings. And it doesn't take so personally the wrongs that do slap us in the face. So that means... That it's possible, and not only possible, but it would be right for us to have displeasure, for us to be angry at the right things and in the right way, at things that aren't actually about us. The more I practice this, the more you practice this, then the less it's about you, the less centered on you it is, and the more it's centered now on the person that is doing it, the person that you're trying to help with it. But, next paragraph, patience hurts. It's hard to learn. 
You struggle within yourself so that you don't react immediately in the wrong way. You bear with difficult people and events, not out of indifference, resignation, or cowardice. Look at this line. You hang in there because you are driven by a different purpose. You're willing to work slowly to solve things. Patience is not passivity. It's how to be purposeful and constructive in the face of great difficulties. You're even willing to live constructively for a long time within seemingly insoluble evils. By definition, patience means that what's wrong doesn't change right away. So a near synonym of patience is forbearance. To forbear means to hang in there with people or events that remain wrong and hurtful. It's more than just brute endurance, just grit and, you know, grin and bear it. It does not mean that you just keep on keeping on. Forbearance is committed to changing the world, this world that is yours, and willing to hang in there for as long as it takes, not simply to endure the world, but rather to change what's happening. The willingness to work over the long haul is the first piece of this destructive, or excuse me, constructive displeasure of mercy, patience. Second is forgiveness. And forgiveness is the willingness to not get even. Forgiveness is a second mercy, another curious and complex response to what's wrong, truly. Forgiveness also looks wrong in the eye, like patience does. By definition, it names wrong for what it is, and it feels the sting. So again, it's not doing the junk we do. Oh, let's just forget about it. Some of you grew up in homes where nobody ever dealt, actually dealt with anything. And everything was just swept under the rug. And at the holidays and all of that, we put on a facade that everything's good. The Bible doesn't do this. God doesn't do that. Patience doesn't do that because patience is saying, by definition, it's wrong. Same thing with forgiveness. By definition, it names wrong for what it is and it feels the sting. But then notice this. Then it consciously acts unfairly in return. Now, hang on to that for a minute because you read that and you go, all right, now you're talking. Now you're speaking my language. Right? We'll get this thing straightened out. I got, I got my definition of forgiveness, and it acts unfairly in return. But stay with it. Anger is all about fairness. However accurate or distorted our perceptions of fairness might be. Remember what I said. The more self-centered you are, the more evils there are. And if in your mind... All of these things and all of these people then are evils. Then what you're doing in response to it is necessarily justice, fairness. This is evil. People should not give me a hard time. People should not be in my way. People should not be a hassle. The truth of the matter is there shouldn't be people. But since there are... God has made Rambos like me to deal with it. And because it's evil, if you people could only understand what's going on in my heart, that these slights and this junk and these inconveniences and my life not turning out the way it was supposed to, this is all evil, so it is only right and just and fair that I do what I'm doing. And there's a guy named Jonah who agrees with you. 
God says to him, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Yeah, I'm right to be angry. You better believe it. Of course I've got a right to be angry. That's what Jonah says. Because this is not fair, what you're doing, God. It's not fair that you show mercy to the Ninevites. And here's the thing. Did you know that grace is by definition unfair? And when I teach our Master Plan for Life class, I say grace is unfairness in our favor. If God gave you what's fair, look out. So that's why then it says this. Forgiveness consciously acts unfairly. Anger is all about fairness. But forgiveness is mercifully unfair. You choose not to give back what only seems fair, just, equitable, and reasonable. And it only seems fair because in your heart, in your mind, these are all evils because of the self-centeredness. If I throw a china teacup onto a slate floor, I deserve its shattering. If I betray your trust, I deserve your wrath. But if that teacup bounces and remains whole, I receive a most astonishing and undeserved gift. And if you forgive me, you do me an undeserved kindness. Forgiveness does not ignore what's wrong. It does not excuse what's wrong. It does not pretend that the person didn't really mean it. Instead, recognizing that a debt is owed, it forgives the debt. What is the dynamic? That dynamic is found in Psalm 103. It begins by remembering how God described himself to Moses when they met on Mount Sinai. Back in Exodus 34, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. That is, he's patient and he's abounding in steadfast love. These words express the genetic code of the Bible. This DNA comes in the flesh of Jesus. This is who he is and what he's like. It's what it it is like when you or I live out the image of God. A different life purpose makes all the difference. May it be said of you and me. He or she is merciful. He or she is gracious. They're patient. They abound in steadfast love. Your anger experience changes as you're refashioned in that image. And then Psalm 103, he will not always chide, will not keep his anger forever. God's anger is always justified. It's always just. But he doesn't give his anger the final word. Just displeasure, that is right displeasure, serves within the larger constructive purposes of mercy. This means that God is spectacularly unfair to us. And the next verse says he does not deal with us according to our sins and does not repay us according to our iniquities. Forgiveness means you don't get what you deserve. And that's the most blessed thing there could be. Because God is unfair, we have hope. Instead of fairness, you get someone who is deadly serious about wrong, but acts on your, be- on your behalf in ways that are inconceivably unfair. And then Psalm 103 goes on. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. To fear God is to wake up to who he is, to know my dependency on him, to realize that his opinion of me is the opinion that matters, to feel my vulnerability before him. He is good and I'm not. But his steadfast love has found expression in this constructive displeasure of mercy. If you think about the night sky, how high is the visible universe above where we are right now? And at night, while walking around your neighborhood, it's sometimes possible to spot that faint blur of light that we call the Andromeda galaxy. 
At the speed of light, it takes 200,000 years to flash from one side of that tiny disk to the other. This light takes two and a half million blazing fast years to reach our eyes. And God's steadfast love is that high. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions. His forgiveness is that wide, one end of the universe to the other. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It's that tender, tangible, that considerate of our needs and our limitations. To know such a Savior is to be in awe of him and to love him. By receiving forgiveness in our need, we become able and willing to give forgiveness to others. All right. Let me say with that, that line is sobering. Because if you know the forgiveness of God, you need to be someone who can grant forgiveness to others. And conversely, if you don't grant forgiveness to others, it may be because you don't know the forgiveness of God. So I'm saying to you, dear friend, If you're a person who is all about this destruction in your wake and you're self-centered and you have your different expressions of anger, some people very demonstrative and all of that, some people, you know, the cauldron that is seething and then it comes out, transfer anger, whatever. If you got that going on, this class needs to be part of examining our hearts. Have I appropriated the love and the forgiveness of Jesus? Have I experienced that myself? Do I understand what God has forgiven in Christ for me? Do you understand how big that is? Do you understand Allah Matthew 18 and Jesus' parable of the man who owed a small was owed a small debt, but he owed an extremely large debt that he couldn't pay? Couldn't pay. And he took the guy by the throat, remember that? Pay me back what you owe me. But he himself received mercy. He's saying that's us. We receive that mercy. But then we go after tooth and nail. Those who we perceive to owe us. And if we do that. Then we are not understanding the debt that Jesus Christ has paid for us. So that is what page 29 in effect tells us. Now if you'll look at page 30 and we'll end previous page talked about if you're going to do forgiveness you got to do two kinds of forgiveness so please read page 29 on your own but there's attitudinal forgiveness forgiveness in your attitude you have an attitude of forgiveness even before the transaction of forgiveness takes place so there's two kinds attitudinal and transactional there's my attitude toward the person And then there is the transaction that takes place between the persons. And the one precedes the other. The attitude precedes the transaction. And we want both. But notice page 30. This combination of attitudinal and transacted forgiveness helps make sense of many common and extremely tangled situations. Here are three. First, what if the other person won't hear you out? He or she gets defensive and self-righteous, counterattacking when you're seeking to be constructive. Again, we're driven back to our Father to forgive attitudinally. This vertical dimension of forgiveness must always happen, and it keeps your attitude in check. 
The horizontal dimension between you and the other person is more uncertain and hazardous. It's a goal to pursue, but it's not a certainty. It takes two to reconcile, just like it takes two to make war. But one can forgive even when the other is still at war. It's called loving your enemy. You can have attitudinal forgiveness. Second, what if the person who hurt you is off the scene, perhaps dead, perhaps long vanished out of your life, perhaps too hostile or even dangerous to approach? This attitudinal forgiveness means you can always deal with the things that poison your own heart. Transacted forgiveness and actual reconciliation are desirable, not always attainable. But by God's mercy, we can always establish our hearts in mercy. We're not left in limbo when there's no possibility of reconciling. Third, seeing that our forgiveness of others has two interconnected parts helps us navigate the opposite messages that one often hears in Christian circles. Some in the church teach, if you forgive from the heart, you don't need to go to the person. Others say, unless the person asks, you don't need to forgive. Each has this this half-truth. And so both of them need to happen. Now, some of you have asked me about that in the past, and I really am going to finish in one minute. And I've told you that reconciliation cannot take place unless both parties participate. That's true. But you always have to deal with your own heart whether the other person will or will not. And that's what's being said here about attitudinal and transactional forgiveness. If we do those then, we've got the first two keys of the four. We'll look at the other two next week, all right? Let's pray, and we'll continue next week. Father, you are the model for everything that we are supposed to be. And you've given us, in God the Son, a living, breathing, human example of what human life is to look like now in a fallen world. And then with that character being formed in us in a fallen world, oh Lord, we are fitted for the world to come. And you will make us like Jesus completely at that time. So Lord, thank you for being our example, for being our model. But Lord, not just a model to pursue but giving us in your spirit the power to do it. I can't do this on my own. What we have just talked about here is unnatural for me and for us, but it is supernaturally natural for you. And you empower me to do what you call us to and us to do. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the mercy of your truth. We thank you for the mercy of your spirit. We thank you for the mercy of your example in the Lord Jesus. Go with us then this week and help me and help us to begin to practice these things in our attitudes, in our circles, in our relationships. And over these next four weeks, Lord, help us to make progress in forgiving and in understanding the displeasure that we should have at the right things and in the right way. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.